of glittering delights. And here your host, Dr. Leyland. On November 23rd, 1963, a brand new television series debuted on BBC One. It was an inauspicious show, not created by one visionary with a dream, or even someone with a single idea to be explored. Rather, the show was the brainchild of numerous people, and designed to be a stopgap in the schedules. Canadian producer Sidney Newman, recently made head of drama at the BBC, decided a programme needed to slot into the early evening Saturday night schedules, something between the sport and the light entertainment, and the then more adult fur as the evening progressed. It wasn't to be a children's show, per se, rather a show that could appeal to all viewers, but it still needed to fit the BBC's remit to educate, inform and entertain. Newman had long been a science fiction fan, saying, quote, Up to the age of 40, I don't think there was a science fiction book I hadn't read. I love them because they're a marvellous way, and a safe way, I might add, of saying nasty things about our own society. End quote. He felt science fiction was underrepresented on television, and that it was a perfect way to generate stories that would adhere to all three of the BBC's mandates. But this would be a classy production. No aliens or creatures or, as Newman stated, bug-eyed monsters. Newman conceived the idea of the TARDIS, as well as of the central character of the Doctor, a wanderer in time and space. He would be an elderly gentleman, and he would show younger people around, taking them on travels through history. Head of the script department, Donald Wilson, and writer C.E. Weber contributed heavily to the format of the programme, and co-wrote the programme's first format document with Newman, with Weber conceiving the idea of a time machine larger on the inside than the outside, as well as the central character of the mysterious Doctor, and the name Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Doctor Who? It's a great title, if you sit and think about it for a minute. Remove yourself from 60 years of knowing what it is and what it means. Writer Russell T. Davis has said, You don't recognise genius in the moment. It takes a while to ferment. The name Doctor Who? Well, it's a question, isn't it? And a doctor... Well, a doctor is a man of intelligence, but what do they know? And where will they take you? It suggests mystery and adventure. It's perfect. Production on the show was led by Verity Lambert, the BBC drama department's first female producer, and the serial was directed by Waris Hussain, an Indian and a gay man, as well as being the corporation's youngest drama director. The series, however, would not launch smoothly, and the first filmed production was not without its issues, both behind and in front of the camera. The programme was originally intended to open with a serial entitled The Giants, written by Weber, but this was scrapped by June 1963, as the technical requirements of the storyline, in which the leading characters were drastically reduced in size, was found to be beyond the capabilities of the BBC effects department of the time. It wasn't just the technical difficulties, it was felt that the story itself lacked the necessary impact for the series opener, especially one as ambitious as Doctor Who. This script would be revisited in the second season of the show. However, 
In the moment, the lack of script ready for production caused problems, and thus the untitled second serial from writer Anthony Coburn was moved to first in the running order. This order change necessitated rewriting the opening episode of Coburn's script to include some introductory elements of Weber's script from the first episode of The Giants. As a result, Weber received a co-writer's credit for the script, now named An Unearthly Child, on internal BBC documentation. But he did not receive this credit on screen. Coburn also made several significant original contributions to the opening episode, most notably that the Doctor's time machine should resemble a police box, an idea he conceived after seeing a real police box while walking near his office. There is still some controversy who named the vessel TARDIS, an acronym for Time and Relative Dimension in Space. Some say writer Coburn came up with it, whilst others say it was Verity Lambert. It's fitting that there should still be some mystery after all these years. Still, for all these myriad contributors, only Coburn's name is on the credits. No one could have believed this would lead to trouble 60 years down the line. But more on that later. Casting was quickly underway. 55-year-old character actor William Hartnell was to take the part of the Doctor. Hartnell was known mostly for playing army sergeants and other tough characters in a variety of film and television roles, so this was a change of pace for him, and was considered casting against type. Hartnell, for his part, was delighted to be able to show the other side to his talents. William Russell was cast as essentially the male action lead. The Doctor would be more aloof, crotchety, and frequently an anti-hero, so it was decided a stronger, more traditional male action figure may be required. Russell had form, having played Sir Lancelot for years on ITV, and he took the role of science teacher Ian Chesterton. Russell would, amongst his many film and television roles, appear as a Kryptonian elder in the opening scenes of Superman the Movie. History teacher Barbara Wright was played by Jacqueline Hill. It was decided to have two teachers on the show to emphasise the learning potential of the adventures. The hardest role to cast was that of the young lady who would be the catalyst for the adventures. Ultimately, 23-year-old Carol Ann Ford was cast as the Doctor's 15-year-old granddaughter, Susan, but it was Coburn who suggested this relationship between the two main characters so as not to have there be any impropriety suggested by the Doctor hanging around with a young teenage girl. Work got underway, and a pilot episode was recorded in September of 1963, but was considered unbroadcastable. Rather than scrap the series, production was remounted in October 63 and refined considerably. Technical hitches were ironed out, performances fine-tuned, and several changes were made to the show's costuming, effects, and scripts throughout the new production. Now, I know what you're thinking. And you're right. This flies in the face of what we think of as good television. There was no singular author for Doctor Who. No one person with a vision. Rather, a collection of creatives all working together to fill a gap in the schedule. We can all think of television shows or other creative endeavours that were never as good when their creators left or when the singular vision for that particular show or film or television programme or book or comic or whatever is not followed. 
shows that suffered once their creator left, such as Season 7 of The Gilmore Girls, Season 6 and 7 of Buffy, and the last few years of The West Wing, are prime examples of this philosophy. We're constantly told, art shouldn't work by committee. Except when it does. So what do we have? A series with an unshowable pilot, in an expensive genre, with a cast-against-type leading man who wasn't really all that heroic to begin with, and a cobbled-together premise. The BBC understandably wondered, would it fly? There was no more time for second-guessing. The transmission date, after being altered and put back on a few separate occasions, finally arrived. At quarter past five, on a cold November evening, as the nights drew in, audience were treated to their first look at this startling new show. Who theme is now so familiar to audiences that it's hard to place it in context, but at the time it was revolutionary. The music, ostensibly composed by Ron Rayner, was significantly altered by Dick Mills and especially Delia Derbyshire of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Grainer supplied them with a single sheet of A4 manuscript paper containing the basic melody and baseline parts of the theme with evocative annotations such as wind bubble and cloud. Grainer actually doubted that his ideas could be realised due to the technological limitations of the time. When he finally heard the finished piece, he reportedly asked, Did I write that? To which Delia equally reportedly replied, very nearly. Upon hearing what had been done, Grainer suggested splitting his performance royalty income, although BBC policy at the time meant that this didn't happen. Which is a shame, as for all intents and purposes, the theme you hear every week is the work of Delia Derbyshire as much as it is the work of Ron Grainer. The opening titles to which the theme was choreographed was created by Bernard Lodge and was called The Howlaround Effect. It was achieved relatively simply. Lodge simply pointed a camera at its own monitor to generate the feedback and thus recorded it. The resulting collection of patterns and shapes had a ethereal, dreamlike quality, and a similar technique was used by Stanley Kubrick for the Stargate sequence in 2001 A Space Odyssey. The tonally bizarre music and the visuals being a creation of something that normally signified a mistake combined in a way never before seen on television. In the finished episode, the theme plays out longer than it would subsequently, running over the opening scene, adding even more menace to it. 
On a dark, foggy evening, a lone policeman looks around a junkyard, ostensibly owned by an I.M. foreman. His torch passes over a nondescript police box, perhaps being junked. With nothing to see, the policeman leaves. It's a moody and atmospheric opener, with the audience not really sure what they're watching. Especially when we then cut to a high school, where Ian and Barbara compare notes on a student, a Susan Foreman, who was incredibly knowledgeable about certain things, especially science and history, but seems somewhat lacking in her understanding of typical teenage interests, such as pop music trivia. In the areas in which she excels, she is frequently more knowledgeable than the teachers. These simple experiments are child's play to her. You know, it's almost got to the point where I deliberately want to trip her up. Yes. Something like that happened the other day. I'd set the class a problem with A, B and C as the three dimensions. It's impossible unless you use D and D. D and E? Whatever for? Do the problem that's set, Susan. I can't, Mr. Jetson. You can't simply work on three other dimensions. Three of them? Ah. Oh. Time being the fourth, I suppose. Then what do you need E for? What do you make the fifth dimension? Space. Too many questions and not enough answers. Stupid, or just doesn't know. So we have a 15-year-old girl who is absolutely brilliant at some things and excruciatingly bad at others. There she is. Look, can we go in? I, I hate to think of her alone in that place. If she is alone. Look, she is 15. She might be meeting a boy. Didn't that occur to you? I almost hope she is. What do you mean? Well, it would be so wonderfully normal. <laughs> Silly, isn't it? I feel frightened. As if we were about to interfere in something that is best left alone. The building of the mystery is marvellous. Yes, it's a tad stagey, but director Hussein keeps it visually interesting by having Susan direct her lines directly to the audience, putting us in Ian and Barbara's shoes, and thus involving us more deeply in the action. Ian and Barbara get Susan's address from the register and decide to drop by under the guise of checking up on her homework. Again, we heighten the drama here as Ian and Barbara enter the junkyard to follow Susan, only to believe she's disappeared. This is then our first encounter with the TARDIS. I'd have got out without us seeing her. Ian, look at this. What? Well, it's a police box. What on earth is he doing here? I mean, these things are usually on the street. That... I feel it. Feel it, you feel it? It's a faint vibration. It's alive! Thirteen minutes into the show, we meet the title character. From the off, he's crotchety and ornery, as well as being dismissive, picky and evasive. He tries to get Barbara and Ian to leave, pointing out that they are spying and trespassing. That it's shot as live adds an urgency to the performances, and at this early stage, Hartnell is on top form. Still, as a filming technique, it is flawed, featuring some fluffed camera zooms and switches between angles. But when Hussein keeps all three actors in the same frame, he keeps the action flowing in a way that feels organic and brings a realism to the performances. 
The Doctor attempts to filibuster Ian and Barbara, initially trying to convince them that Susan can't be here, then encouraging them to call the police, before Ian and Barbara hear her voice emanating from inside the nondescript police box. Convinced the old man is holding Susan against her will, Barbara forces herself past the old guy and in to the TARDIS. Don't tell everybody about the ship now. Ship? Yes, yes, ship. This doesn't roll along on wheels, you know. You mean it moves? The TARDIS can go anywhere. TARDIS? I don't understand you, Susan. Well, I made up the name TARDIS from the initials Time and Relative Dimension in Space. I thought you'd both understand when you saw the different dimensions inside from those outside. Let me get this straight. A thing that looks like a police box standing in a junkyard, it can move anywhere in time and space? Yes. Quite so. But that's ridiculous. Why won't they believe us? Well, how can we? There's a lot of information given out here, all handled wonderfully. The Doctor makes an attempt to explain the TARDIS by saying it's like looking at a TV with a large building on it whilst being in a small living room. The building has appeared in the living room, despite being much larger. Ian calls bollocks on this explanation. The Doctor then expresses displeasure that Susan wanted to go to school in the first place, saying that it was a bad idea, and he tells Susan that they shouldn't have stayed in one place too long, implying they are running or hiding from someone or something. None of these things are explained, from the TARDIS and its bizarre interior dimensions, to who Susan and the Doctor, said to be her grandfather, are, to what they may be hiding from, to why Susan is named Foreman after the owner of the junkyard. Did she just take the name because it was the? Is her name even Susan? It's said that they are aliens from another planet, but there's nothing more than that given. Ian and Barbara are as baffled as the audience, and as audience identify as they work exceptionally well. The only explanation offered by the Doctor is this one. Have you ever thought what it's like to be wanderers in the fourth dimension? Have you? To be exiles? Susan and I are cut off from our own planet, without friends or protection. But one day, we shall get back. Yes, one day. One day. The Doctor then turns from serious into a mischievous sprite, not allowing Barbara or Ian to leave, and telling Susan that if they are allowed to go, he and Susan will have to leave. Susan, having become happy in 20th century 1963, is aghast and refuses to leave. The Doctor then hatches his plan. He allows Ian to electrocute himself whilst trying to open the TARDIS doors, and Barbara, unable to accept the evidence of her own eyes, tries to scully Susan, telling her this is all an elaborate ruse concocted by her grandfather for whatever reason. The Doctor then flicks some switches, essentially kidnapping Ian and Barbara, and for the first time, the TARDIS dematerialises. This materialisation sequence is unlike any since. An ethereal and dreamlike miasma of falling bodies, close-ups of baffled faces and swirling feedback before the TARDIS reappears, sat upon a sandy hillside as an ominous shadow falls upon it. Next episode, the caption reads, The Cave of Skulls. The show's difficulties didn't end with transmission. The day before the show's launch, the 35th American president, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated. The first episode was therefore overshadowed by the news of this event. 
And to eliminate the audience's confusion, the BBC took the unprecedented step of repeating An Unearthly Child earlier in the afternoon of the 30th of November, a few hours before the transmission of part two of the serial. Despite the imagination and efforts of all involved, the serial received initial mixed reviews from the press of the time, and the four episodes that comprised the complete story only attracted an average audience of six million viewers. The BBC's hand hovered over the cancellation button, saying if ratings didn't improve, the series would be gone after week 13. However, fate was to intervene once again. With Coburn's script brought forward to be the new first story, there was no second story in production. Verity Lambert bought a 26-page outline from writer Terry Nation to be expanded into a six-part story, later further expanded to seven episodes, and influenced by the threat of racial extermination by the Nazis and the concerns of advanced warfare. It would feature a new race called the Daleks. Sidney Newman was not happy with the serial. Remember, he wanted to avoid featuring bug-eyed monsters. However, with no other scripts ready, they were forced to accept the serial for production. It saved the show. For the seven weeks the Daleks heard, the ratings increased every week, starting at 6 million and clocking in at 10.5 million by the serial's end. Dalek mania took off in every school across the land, and Doctor Who had arrived. They never left. The cast became superstars, mobbed and beloved by children wherever they went. Hartnell loved it, Ford, not so much. She was the first of the cast to leave the series in 1964, at the end of the serial The Dalek Invasion of Earth. She is still acting, albeit in a reduced capacity since an illness in 1977, and has returned to the show on television for the 20th anniversary special, The Five Doctors, the 30th anniversary charity special, Dimensions in Time, and various Big Finish audio productions. William Russell is now 99 years old and made a cameo appearance as Ian in the 2022 special The Power of the Doctor, an appearance that put Russell in the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest gap between TV appearances of the same actor in the same role. He has acted continuously since leaving, also appearing in Big Finish audios. In 2013, the BBC produced An Adventure in Space and Time, a docudrama depicting the creation of the early days of Doctor Who as part of the programme's 50th anniversary, and both Russell and Ford had cameo appearances. Anyone further interested in the origins of Doctor Who, I urge you to check out this special. Jacqueline Hill left the show at the same time as William Russell after The Chase, yet another Dalek story, in 1965. Hill never returned as Barbara, but in October 1980, she did return to Doctor Who in a guest role in the story Megalos, featuring Tom Baker as the Doctor. In this, she played a completely different character, and no reference was made to her having played Barbara. And this rather odd casting decision is a rarity in the show, akin to casting Billy Piper in the upcoming new series, and not referencing that she's been in the show before. Like, at all. Hill passed away from breast cancer in 1993, aged only 63. William Hartnell was forced to leave the role he loved due to ill health in 1966. Like David Tennant, he didn't want to go, but his illness began to affect his ability to learn his lines, with the problems increasing as his time on the series progressed. 
When William Russell was in the cast, Russell was capable of adding in some of Hartnell's lines to his own, covering any fluffs as best he could. But with his departure, the problems became more and more apparent. The difficult decision was taken to recast the part, leading to another unique part in the series' history. It was decided that, since the Doctor is an alien, he could transform himself physically, though by renewing himself. Hartnell suggested the actor who should play the new Doctor, stating that there's only one man in England who can take over, and that's Patrick Troughton. Hartnell's last appearance was in the fourth episode of the serial The Tenth Planet in 1966. Hartnell took a few other roles after leaving and would return to the show for the 10th anniversary story, The Three Doctors, which also featured Troughton and the third actor to play the part, John Pertwee. When Hartnell's wife, Heather, found out about his planned involvement, she informed the production crew that his failing memory and weakening health would prevent him from starring in the special. A compromise was reached between the crew and Heather, in that Hartnell would sit down during the shoot and read his lines from cue cards. This was his final piece of work as an actor due to his declining health. William Hartnell passed away on the 23rd of April 1975 at the age of 67. However, his doctor lives on. Richard Herdnell took the role in The Five Doctors and David Bradley played William Hartnell in the aforementioned An Adventure in Space and Time. In the kind of meta-contextuality that can only happen in Doctor Who, Bradley then went on to play the first Doctor himself in the episode Twice Upon a Time, the final episode to feature Peter Capaldi in his turn as Doctor Who. Verity Lambert went on to have a magnificent career, producing many of the most groundbreaking and memorable British films and shows of the 70s, 80s and 90s, and adding many achievements to our already impressive CV. She tried to return to produce Doctor Who a few times, but was thwarted. She passed away in 2007, aged 71. The 2007 Doctor Who Christmas special, Voyage of the Damned, was dedicated in her name. Warris Hussain, the director, is still alive, aged 84, and still works occasionally. He's still involved in Doctor Who fandom and embraces his role in the show fondly. Writer Anthony Coburn died in 1977, aged only 49. Despite a decent career, he is still best known as being the man who wrote the first Doctor Who serial. The sole writer's credit, as mentioned earlier, makes it sad to report that as of this recording, his son, Steph Coburn, has removed the licensing agreement with the BBC to have the serial be seen on BBC iPlayer as part of the 60th anniversary celebrations and the efforts to get every episode still available on the service. He has also said he will block every subsequent release of the episodes on any new media. So... If an unearthly child is still available via BritBox or whatever streaming service you have near you, I'd watch it now. Or buy the DVD. This is not to say the rights can't be sorted out at some point in the future, but at the moment it seems both sides have reached an impasse. An unearthly child only points at the potential of Doctor Who, but it does so with class and style. Its atmospheric sets and urgent direction still demonstrate a vital production, but no one could have foreseen that the show would still be on the air 60 years later. It is the most successful science fiction TV series ever to air, with 862 episodes and no sign of stopping just yet. It can take you anywhere 
any when. Because in times of need, we all require the services of the Doctor. So, Andy, we have to do a new trailer for The Overlooked Dark Knight. Really? Why? Because we moved. We moved? Yeah, things um, things weren't working out with the system that I've used since 2008, and the episodes are taking forever to come out, so I just moved us over to Libsyn. And is this going to change anything about the show? Oh, absolutely not. We're still reading Batman comics and talking about them. Well, because it's hard to talk about comics you've not read. For the most part. And we're sticking to the Batman comics that have been overlooked or forgotten over the years? That's the plan. And we're just going to abandon that format whenever we want from time to time? More than likely. I mean, it it is us. (laughs) Yeah, right? Rules are meant to be broken anyway. And what about the old episodes? Well, the old episodes will still be available on the old feed. I I have no plans on closing that out. I may start porting some of those over to the new feed, but all of the feeds are going to stand for the moment. Uh, For the new episodes, just look for the album cover with the Jerry Bingham art wherever you look for your podcasts. Seems relatively foolproof. And I'll still be doing posts at www.fortressofbailey2.com where people can leave comments, see the covers, and occasionally pages from the comics we talk about. Brilliant. So... Meeting adjourned. Pint! I'm up for that. Okay, shall we have a brief look at the email section? Our email is from Matt Prather. Hey, Andrew. Hello, Matt. The Roger Stern run of everyone's favourite wall crawler is fun. I have to say it would make a good example of how to alter the status quo without a soft reboot. Maybe something that modern comic creators could draw inspiration from. Thank you, as always, Matt Prather. Yeah, that. well, you said it yourself. Maybe, instead of constantly renumbering things with new number ones whenever a new writer comes on board or kicking over all the tables or whatever, maybe they should take a leaf out of Stern's book and just do the job properly. I could not agree more. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, everybody who listens as we approach the end of another year. Whether we'll get a couple of episodes out before Christmas is, at this point, unknown. At least that's what the Magic 8-Ball says. Doing Hey Kids comics does take up a lot of time, which has meant, as you may have noticed, this show has fallen by the wayside a little bit. But if you're not checking out Hey Kids comics, which has returned with all new episodes as of September 2023, hop on over there and listen to Michael and I discuss all manner of weird and wacky comic book fun. It's not just all about the capes. It's all going to be okay, hopefully, and I'll see you all again real soon. Take care.